0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find ourselves. Verses 1 through 8 this evening, the title of the message, Possessing Your Vessel. Possessing Your Vessel. Follow me. Those two words hold the key to a relationship with God. Five times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, Follow me. Each time Jesus said it, it was an offer. And a request that the person in question, the person to whom Jesus was speaking, would leave behind the love and the loyalty that they had in this life in order to pursue their love and loyalty to a man who claimed to give them eternal life. When Jesus said, follow me, He was asking that person to leave what the world says is good and right and normal to pursue what God says is good and right and necessary. When Jesus said, follow me, He was asking that person to trust Him above what they saw with their eyes, above what they heard with their ears, above what they comprehended with their minds. When Jesus said, follow me, He wasn't asking for a part of that person's life. He was asking for all of that person's life. When Jesus said, follow me, He was offering to give them abundant life by asking them to die to self. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are by definition a follower of Christ. You have counted the cost and counted Christ and His message of complete truth and of sufficient importance that you have literally staked your entire destiny on His teachings. You trust Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself and have committed yourself absolutely to the truth that when you stand before God one day and claim righteousness through the name of Jesus Christ, your petition will indeed be found acceptable to God. But following Jesus is more than just a decision, isn't it? Following Jesus is a lifestyle. Following Jesus is a commitment. Following Jesus is everything. A follower of Jesus is intended to, well, for for lack of a better term, follow Jesus, right? Is intended to walk in His footsteps. Is intended to follow His example. Is intended to heed His teaching. To do what He does. To don't do what He won't do. To love what He loves. To hate what He hates. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It was in this context last week that we were commanded by Paul to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men. That as the life of Jesus Christ was defined by the very deepest expressions of love for all with whom he interacted, so too we are to follow Christ into a love for one another as believers. And then for the world, which is that enmity with Christ, without any thought of personal advantage or gain, without any thought of being taken advantage of, love is foundational to a believer's life and foundational to a believer's interaction with others. But we took care last week to define love, didn't we? We took care last week to give ourselves a template within which we understand what that word love means. We made a point of recognizing that biblical love is very, very different from the world's definition of love. That biblical love, the Bible defines love as, above all else, being completely selfless. Completely selfless. Love takes no thought for his own well-being, but rather pours out his efforts into the well-being of others. Now, the world, on the other hand, defines love very differently, does it not? In the world around us, love is often seen as an emotion, not a choice. A feeling that cannot be defined, but even though it cannot be defined, it somehow is able to drive the very deepest compulsions that we have. That love is nebulous, and yet somehow love drives us. The world teaches that love is dependent upon favor so that a person can fall in love and out of love based upon the actions of another or even their own emotional state at that given time. The world sees physical intimacy as an expression of love regardless of the terms on which the intimacy takes place. Regardless of the context within which the intimacy exists. The world says that physical intimacy is love and where physical intimacy exists, love exists. It's very apropos that this message would be founded on Valentine's Day weekend. It's the weekend of love. And according to the world, regardless of whether physical intimacy is within the context of a marriage or outside of marriage, it's an expression of love. Regardless of whether this intimacy is between a man and a woman, or a man and a man, or a woman and woman, it's an expression of love. Regardless of whether this intimacy is with many or just with one, it is an expression of love. That's what the world says. And the world could not be farther from the truth. The world could not possibly be farther from the truth. 1 Thessalonians three twelve and 13, Paul exhorts us unto biblical love. This week, Paul extends that teaching by exhorting us unto personal chastity and physical purity. These two concepts are not just related, they are, in fact, inseparable. Chastity and purity. You cannot abound in love toward God and others if you are also engaged in sexual impurity. Simply put, this is going to be a pointed message. I'm not going to beat around the bush. And it needs to be said, and it needs to be heard. And I'm glad you're here to hear it this evening. So please look with me at First Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave... You, by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you would abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. That's the text this evening. Let's walk through it together. In verse 1, we see Paul say, "...furthermore then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus." Furthermore, Paul says, in addition to this exhortation in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3 to uh, increase and abound in love more and more toward the brethren and toward all men, let me mention a few other things, Paul says. There's something remaining that Paul feels compelled to state if he's going to give these believers a well-rounded understanding of his request that love would abound. And it's not just going to be tonight's message that will be a part of this request. His request that love love would abound more and more, will encompass several ideas of Christian liberty, several ideas of Christian sanctification, several ideas of discipleship, several ideas of practical Christian living that will in fact take us through the majority of the rest of the book of 1 Thessalonians. But the one that Paul is teaching on this evening will be on sexual impurity. Paul's teaching here assumes... What well, we might say two forms he first says, "We beseech you, we beseech you, literally meaning to request in an authoritative manner to request with the full expectation that that request will be met. This is not the idea, say of a father go or a child coming up to his father and saying, "Father, may I have a cookie?" That is a child humbly asking his father for something for favor. This is more along the lines of an of, of a parent going up to a child and saying excuse me, child, go, will you please go clean your room? There is an authority that compels a parent saying, child, please go clean your room, because the parent is indeed asking his child to do something. One, the one, in the one example, the child is seeking the favor of the parent. In the other example, the ex- authority is indeed expecting something to be done. So Paul is not saying here that this is an optional thing. He's not saying, I'm asking you to maybe think about possibly just maybe you're okay with it doing this. He's saying, I am heartily, strongly requesting as your father in Christ, as the one who led you to Christ, as the one who helped you form this church, as your spiritual authority, I am beseeching you, asking you to do this. He is using terms, however, that appeal more to his love for them than to his authority over them. He does get more more serious in his second clause. He first says, we beseech you, brethren, and then he says, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. Not only does He beseech that earnest and authoritative request unto them, but He exhorts them. Literally the idea of urgent counsel, of calling someone near, of imploring them, of saying this is something that you need to know. This is something that is very important to you. This is something that you need to know before you get out there, before you go out into the world, before you begin making decisions, you need to hear a few things and this is one of them. And as if his language were not enough, he says, I exhort you by the Lord Jesus. He cannot exhort them by any greater name, could he? He is, he is beseeching and he is exhorting in the name of Christ that they would take his teaching and they would receive it. Well, what is his request? He says in the second half of this verse, As ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and please God. So you would abound more and more. Simply put, Paul's request is that these men and women in the church of Thessalonica would abound in the teaching that Paul and his companions gave them regarding how they're supposed to live their lives. That in the same manner that the Thessalonian church followed Paul's example of love. Remember that? Remember how Paul said... In, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, as we were teaching on the ministry and how the ministry, uh, it, how it, it affects us and how Paul did his ministry, he had mentioned that, that his ministry was one of example. That he went to them and he lived out a proper example among them and he desired that his example would be a teaching tool where they would look at the way he lived his life and say that's how we need to live our lives. And Paul says the same thing here. We beseech you, we exhort you that as we walked... And as we told you you should walk, that you walk. Uh, The other day, my my children were out in in this back parking lot after it had snowed. And we were walking around. And uh, we were walking in fresh snow. And so every step I took, I was leaving footprints. And one of my daughters was jumping from footprint to footprint in daddy's footprints. Footprint to footprint to footprint to footprint. Walking, taking the same steps that daddy walked. That's what Paul is asking here. I'm leaving footprints, Thessalonian church. I'm walking in a direction, follow me. Where my foot goes, your foot goes. Your foot goes, your foot goes. Follow my example. As we have taught you how you should walk, and please God, do it. That they would follow Paul's example and teaching. See, we can talk about loving God, but as the old adage goes, talk is cheap, isn't it? Talk is cheap. If it's not backed up by obedience, by action, if you don't back up your talk with proof. We had a well-known newscaster in this country learn that this past week, right? That talk is cheap that you can say whatever you want to say but if it's not backed up by fact then you're going to have problems when it comes to proving that you're a credible source. Jesus said this in John 14:15, "If you love me, keep my commandments." If you love me, keep my commandments. We can say we keep his commandments, but talk is cheap, do you keep his commandments? In Luke 11, verse 27, a woman lifted up her voice to Jesus and she said these words, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. Literally, this lady looked at Jesus and said, Your mother was a blessed woman because she had the privilege of bearing you and nurturing you as a child. And Jesus' response to her in Luke eleven twenty-eight 28 was this, Yea, rather, He says, Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus said, that's physical. Her taking care of me, yes, I'm sure he was thankful for it. But that's not where the blessing of God comes. The blessing of God comes upon the person who hears the word of God and when they, what they have heard, they obey. What they have heard, they keep. Obedience to God is the most natural and appropriate extension of loving God. The greater the love, the greater our compulsion to obey. The greater the obedience, the greater the love. So Paul exhorts the church in verse 1 that they would abound in Paul's example of how to walk and to please God. The idea of walking in Scripture is that of a relationship. It's not physically talking about walking. I remember a young lady who had just gotten saved. She wanted to get baptized. And as I was counseling her about baptism, I said, you know, many of these things you'll understand as you, walk, as you begin walking with the Lord. She said, what does that mean? To walk with the Lord? I said, well, consider the relationship that you have with your father. Consider what it means for you to walk hand in hand with your father. My, one of my little girls, perfectly capable of going up and down the stairs, but you know what? She likes having someone holding her hand when she goes up and down the stairs. And so I'll take that little hand and we'll walk up the stairs together and we'll walk down the stairs together. And there is a fellowship, there is a communion as we are walking up and down the stairs together. We're together. We're going the same direction. We're doing the same thing. We have the same purpose. It's an idea of relationship. We take steps in one direction. We take steps together. And those steps are either, in the spiritual sense, walking Walking toward God or walking away from God? As the child song says, just two choices on the shelf. Well, what could those choices be? Pleasing God or pleasing self? The song finishes, Oh, I would more like Jesus be. Paul teaches that there is a manner, there is a direction of walking that pleases God. Notice that walking and pleasing God are paired here. There is a way, there is a manner, there is a direction of walking that pleases God. And if there is a direction of walking that pleases God, well then by extension what we know is that there is indeed also a direction of walking that displeases God, right? There is a manner in which we can live our lives, in other words, that displeases God. Because there's a manner of living our lives that does please God. We need to be walking in the manner, in the direction to please God because we love him. And Jesus Christ walked in that direction, and if we're following Christ, step, 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 we are indeed going to be walking in that direction. Paul will speak on many elements of the Christian walk over the next two chapters, but in in verses 2 through 8, we actually get into the meat of what Paul is saying this evening. He teaches on personal purity. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. The first way that Paul mentions to walk and to please God is by obeying God's command as it refers to sexual purity. The church of Thessalonica, like the church of Corinth, was a city that had formerly been an important city in the Greek Empire. Now, the Greek Empire had been overthrown by the Roman Empire, and while Thessalonica and Corinth were not nearly as important cities in those empires, they still had status, and they had still carried over much of Greek culture and philosophy. Both Greek culture and Roman culture were entrenched in deep sexual Immorality. The temples of their false gods, you think particularly in uh, Ephesus, they had the temple of Athena, and as we consider, or Diana, as we consider that great temple what we understand about much of how worship to these gods and particularly that god um, went about was that uh, prostitution, sexual misconduct were regular and even considered proper means of worship in the temple of these false gods. That sexual misconduct, that prostitution, that these things were a part of worship that you would pay in order to to, uh, engage with temple prostitutes, women who who had dedicated themselves to this life of dishonor in the name of a false god. And so in these churches, in Macedonian, and Achaia, churches like Thessalonica, churches like Corinth, even uh, the church of Philippi was there as well, um, Paul is very direct in his teaching against sexual misconduct. And the word used in verse 3 in our King James Bible is translated fornication is literally the Greek word porneia. It's the word by which we get our word, pornography. It is somewhat of a catch-all word that includes any sexual activity outside of the bounds of that which God has prescribed for us. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, there is only one context given within which any sexual activity can take place without displeasing God. There's only one context within which sexual activity can happen while still pleasing God. If I can give you both the negative and the positive way of saying that. And that context is one man, one woman, for life. Marriage is a gift from God, intended by God to continue the human race through procreation, but also to give mankind an honorable outlet for the sexual desires of the flesh. Human sexual devi- desires are indeed very strong by nature. But we learn all the way back in Genesis, Genesis that nakedness is a shame. That nakedness is is a... a mani- the shame that we have in our nakedness is an evident manifestation of our sinfulness against God. When Adam and Eve sinned against God in the, in the garden, the first thing they recognized in their sin was that they were naked. Nakedness is an expression, an o- is a, a testimony, we might say, of our shame for our sin before a holy and a righteous God. Nakedness is unpleasing to God and we know from the Scriptures that to willingly look upon the nakedness of another is to degrade them and to dishonor the God who made them. This is why Noah's son was cursed. Oh, his grandson was cursed. Canaan was cursed because one of his sons looked upon him and did not honor him but rather mocked his nakedness which was to degrade his father, to dishonor God and in doing so was a shame to him. The shame of nakedness is built into humanity just as strong as the desire to look upon it. And to whatever degree we do not feel shame at our nakedness or seeing the nakedness of another, to that degree we have dulled the God-given shame and sensibility of our conscience against this sin. With, the, with one exception. And that exception is the context within which God allows us, which is the context of one man and one woman in ma- marriage for life. Marriage is God's gift and God's solution to the deep desire that humans have for physical intimacy. Within the context of marriage, a man and a woman can pursue physical intimacy without shame. There is no dishonor in the marriage bed, and the marriage bed is the only context within which there is no dishonor for sexual conduct. That being said... Any sexual pursuit outside of marriage as defined in the Bible, one man, one woman for life, is without question sinful. Adultery. Sexual intimacy with another while married is outside the bounds of God's design and is sinful. Homosexuality. Sexual intimacy with another of the same gender is outside the bounds of God's design and is sinful. Pornography. Looking... Upon some degree of the nakedness of another who is not one spouse, is outside the bounds of God's design and is sinful. And the reason why Paul speaks so directly to this is because culture has and always has thrived on sexual misconduct. Pornography today is a multi-billion dollar business. Prostitution thrives in every culture around the world. The entertainment industry, music, television, videos, video games incessantly preach the virtues of sexual perversion. It's in our cartoons. It's in our sitcoms. It's all over the big screen. It's in every sporting event. It's on billboards as you drive down the road. It's the very backbone of internet traffic. It's the theme of an overwhelming number of country songs. It's the theme of an overwhelming number of pop songs. It's the theme of an overwhelming number of rock and rap and hip-hop songs. And because it is everywhere, you and I must be particularly purposed in our preparations for its temptations and in our personal defense of our purity and, may I just say as well, the purity of our children. If we allow this topic to become taboo so that you and I are afraid to preach against it, so that we as parents are afraid to talk to our children against it, we will fail. If we allow ourselves to become desensitized to sexuality in our culture, which our culture is becoming devastatingly desensitized to sexuality, if we allow ourselves to be desensitized to sexuality, so that we can watch sexual misconduct on television and laugh or listen to, uh, to the music and enjoy it or indulge in it ourselves, then we have failed. And if we fail in the area of sexual misconduct, we are without question pleasing, displeasing God. We defile our own hearts, bodies, and consciences. We lose our testimony to a lost and dying world and it's just plain not worth that, folks. Paul's teaching is this. God's will for you. He explicitly states it. We talked this morning about praying for God's will, right? How do I find God's will? Oh, I wish I knew God's will in this situation, this situation. Here's one area where you don't have to pray. You don't even have to infer. For this is the will of God. Look at that, right? Even your sanctification, that word meaning purity, that ye should abstain from sexual misconduct. We walk through life earnestly seeking to know God's will. But this is just stated right there for us. Stay away from pornography. Stay away from adultery. Stay away from nakedness. Stay away from homosexuality. These things are impure. They are outside the God-given context of sexual intimacy. They are sexual perversions. They do not and cannot please God. And what does this mean to live a life of personal purity? Look at verse 4. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. That word sanctification is the same word that we saw in the last verse. Purity and honor literally meaning value, esteem, dignity. It means that you see your body, this body that you have, as a vessel for God's use. And thus you operate in a manner that reflects purity and dignity of being a tool for God. In the Old Testament, the priests were required to wash themselves and to change their clothes before entering into the tabernacle or entering into the temple of God. The reason why they did that is because they were entering into the dwelling place of God and their bodies needed to reflect the purity and the dignity of the location within which they were and the occasion with which they entered. They were going to minister unto God before the people and this was a time for personal purity. A lamb that was to be brought for a sacrifice before God was required by law to be without blemish. There could not be any physical deformities on that lamb. Their fur could not be spotted or speckled or have any sort of uh, blemishes. It needed to be, for lack of a better term, a perfect specimen of a lamb. The reason for this, because they were giving that lamb to God and their gift needed to reflect the purity and the dignity of the one to whom they were giving their gift. Now, in our age, we do not enter into a tabernacle to meet with the Lord, do we? Our bodies, in fact, the Bible says, are the temples of the Lord. Consider First Corinthians six verses eighteen and nineteen. This is Paul teaching to the Corinthians about fornication, and look at how, how dramatic his his command is here. He says in verse six or verse eighteen, excuse me, flee fornication. He's just as pointed with Corinth, with Corinth as he is. With Thessalonica, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. It's external. Every sin that a man does uh, happens outside the body. But he that committeth fornication, sexual misconduct, sinneth against his own body. What, he says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Your body is the temple of God. When you perform other sins, if I steal something, that's outside the body. If I uh, cheat, that's outside the body. That's something that's being done to someone else or against someone else. But when I perform sexual misconduct, I am sinning against my own body, which is the temple of the living God. Your body is not your own if you are a believer in Christ. It is God's body. It is for God's purposes. It is God's tool. It is God's temple. It's where God lives. It is through whom God operates. That means that our bodies should be esteemed by us to be of the utmost value and the utmost dignity. There is a natural dignity to any human because he's a creation of God, right? Because we are created in the image of God, there is a natural human dignity that we all have. When we contend against the vile sin of abortion, we do so on the grounds of human dignity, right? That this is a child created in the image of God that is being mercilessly killed. When we contend against the vile sin of euthanasia where we kill people when they're no longer of use to society, we kill the handicapped, we kill the elderly because they're just bogging us down, they're just dragging us down. When we contend against this sin, we do so on the grounds of human dignity that these are men and that these are women and though perhaps incapacitated in some way, they are a creation of God who has a right to live until God chooses to take them home. When we contend against the vile sins of child pornography or child prostitution, we do so on the grounds of human dignity that this is a young child, a creation of God who has a right to life and is being exploited by others as a piece of meat for these wicked people's pleasure our contentions against slavery, our contentions against abandonment, our contentions against other forms of murder other than abortion and euthanasia, our contentions against assault and every other crime against another uh, at least to some degree is argued on the basis of human dignity. That as a creation of God, every person has a right to live before Him in dignity. How much more so is there a dignity to a human body that is also the temple of the Holy God? How much more dignity, not just because you have been created by God, but literally because God indwells you. How much more esteem ought we give to a body that serves as the vessel through which God operates in this world? Once saved, we are not only a vessel, but we are intended to be a vessel sanctified by God for use in reaching the world for Christ. We strive to keep our clothes clean from mud and oil and things that, we would, uh, that would soil them. But how much more so, I, I, I go home tonight and I need to change the oil. I put on the dingiest, nastiest clothes I have because I'm okay with them getting Dirty. I wouldn't put on my everyday clothes because I wouldn't want them to get dirty and I certainly wouldn't leave my suit on. How much more so would I take care of the finer clothes, the the clothes that are intended to be more honorable? We keep our silverware bright, but how much more so do we take care of our fine china? When something is set aside for a particular and a fine purpose, we take extra pains to ensure that it's kept safe. That it's kept clean, that it's kept beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a born again believer in this room this evening, you are God's home. You are God's temple. You are God's dwelling place. You are the temple of the Holy God. How much more so should you keep it clean? It's all over the news. The movie Fifty Shades of Grey was released yesterday, right? Big controversy over this movie. The book highlights the debauchery of the society in which we live, the debauchery of the imaginations of people within which we, uh, of the people of this culture. And I have no doubt the movie does as well. Now imagine if when that movie comes out on DVD, I were to bring that movie to church and show it here on a Sunday evening. Say, this is going to be our Sunday evening service. We're going to watch this movie. It would be pretty appalling, wouldn't it? How dare I? How dare I bring that movie into a place where we are consecrating ourselves to the worship of God? How dare I defile this place of worship? How dare I desecrate a place set aside to honor the Lord by showing a movie full of filth and perversion? full of the very basest of everything that is wrong with the sexual mindset of this culture. I mean, it would be bad enough if I took it home and watched it at home, much less bringing it to church, but imagine now your body is the temple of God. It doesn't matter if you're watching that movie at church or if you're watching that movie at home, you are watching that movie in the temple of God. You are filling the temple of God with what is coming into your eyes. God is watching it with you, if we could put it that way. It doesn't matter if you view that pornography at church while pastor's preaching or at home in the the darkest corner of your house. You are viewing that pornography in the temple of God. God is watching it with you. It doesn't matter if you are physically intimate outside of marriage in the church or in the privacy of your bedroom. You are being physically intimate outside of marriage in the temple of God and God is there with you. And the temple of God is worthy of honor. The temple of God is worthy of purity. The temple of God deserves better than sexual misconduct. And it is the will of God that you keep your body pure. And when we don't keep our bodies pure, when we pursue the lust of our own longings at the expense of our personal purity, when we dishonor our bodies and thus desecrate the holiness of the temple of God, when we pursue sexual misconduct in any form, look at what Paul says in verse 5, not, he says, don't do, not in the lust of concupiscence, that word literally meaning a forbidden lust, a longing an insatiable lust that we feed, even as the Gentiles which know not God. When we pursue sexual misconduct, Paul says we become no different than the world around us. You remember that, you know, that place called the world, right? They're the ones who we're supposed to be reaching. They're the ones who we're supposed to be living as a light in the darkness so that they could see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. They're the ones who are supposed to see how different we really are and wonder what we have that they don't have and want it too. They are the ones that are our mission field. And then they see us defile our bodies in the same way they defile theirs. And they say, oh, look, these folks are no different than I am. And they give into their passions... And they watch you give in to your passions just the same. And they say, there's no freedom from sin in this faith. And our testimony is non-existent because we're no different than anyone else. We're driven by our lusts just like anyone else. Our uncontrollable desires just like anyone else. We're not the light of the world to see. We're as dark as they. We're not the salt of the earth. We're fodder for anti-Christian rhetoric. That's what's at stake here. But that's not all. Not only does it hurt our testimony, but look at verse 6. Paul says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Not only is your testimony damaged, perhaps irreparably, by sexual misconduct, but when you commit a sexual sin, you are defrauding someone. You are stealing from someone something that is not yours. The argument is made that the Ten Commandments say nothing about sexual misconduct outside of marriage, only about adultery within the scope of marriage. Well, that's wrong. Because Paul states here that sexual misconduct in any context is to covet something that is not yours and to take it. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. When you look at a woman in lust, men, you are defrauding that woman of her dignity. You are taking something from her. If she's married, you're defrauding her husband of that which is rightfully his and only his. If she's unmarried, you are defrauding her father of that which is in his safekeeping by God's command. When you pursue sexual misconduct with another, you are defrauding that person of their dignity. You are defrauding their spouse or perhaps their future spouse of that which is exclusively theirs by right. You are defrauding their protectors, be it parents or some other guardian, of that which is in their safekeeping. Paul says, when you go beyond in sexual misconduct, you defraud someone. And to defraud another is to do the very opposite of loving them, isn't it? You're not doing what is in their best interest. You are doing what you want with them. And that is to defraud them. And to fail to love is to fail to be like Christ. And to pursue sexual perversion is to pursue uncleanness. And the second half of this verse tells us that the Lord is the avenger of all such actions. Literally, God will make right this wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us how. Paul says, "I wrote uh, as I told you before, says specifically in verse 6, um, excuse me, uh, as we also have forewarned you and testified. So at some point previously, while Paul was in Thessalonica, he told them this already and he forewarned them, he testified unto them that God is indeed the avenger of those who would defraud a brother in some sexual perversion. We don't have it written specifically what that avenging would be, but you can mark it down. God is the avenger of all such. Verse 7, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. For the third time in seven verses, we see the same word translated here, holiness, translated the other two times, sanctification. All three the same Greek word, hagiosmos, literally meaning purity. Translated um, in order that we would recognize the tremendous weight of the word holiness in this case god wants you sexually pure this isn't an age issue this isn't a gender issue this isn't just something that teenage boys need to hear or teenage girls need to hear this is a message this is a christian issue god wants us sexually pure verse 8 the bottom line is found in verse 8 He therefore that despiseth, literally meaning to set aside or to disesteem, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us His Holy Spirit. When you engage in sexual misconduct, when you defraud another, especially those that are of the household of faith, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, when you look upon the nakedness of one outside of God's design, when you engage in physical intimacy with another outside of God's design, you are telling God, that you care more about yourself than Him. You are disesteeming God. You are lowering your esteem for God in your eyes to the extent where you are elevating your own lust above God's worth. The very God that gave you His Holy Spirit, the very God who placed His Spirit within you, the very God that has turned you into the temple of the living God, you are going into His temple, you are brazenly looking at Him in the face, and you are committing sexual impurity before His eyes. That's the brazenness of the sin that Paul is stating here. This is what we do when we commit sexual impurity. Men, I'm going to turn to you specifically for a moment. The women will kind of come in here and then they'll come out again as I'm addressing the men. Men, to look upon a woman that is not your wife is to disrespect her. Simply put. If you want to be a man who respects women, who esteems God, then honor them by treating them more than just meat for our personal consumption. Western culture, like every culture that has ever lived, sees women as objects for little more than personal pleasure. It is the greatest of ironies that in the midst of all of the ridiculous and radical feministic ideas that are floating around in Western culture right now, the intense amount of feminism to where if a woman uh, speaks against feminism in public, she is publicly scorned for saying such a terrible thing, where women think they are contending for self-respect by demanding the same jobs and the same pay as men, by demanding their freedom from the biblical expectations of of gender roles. Women are using that so-called freedom to debase themselves in the eyes of men. Women are taking that so-called freedom and placing themselves even deeper into the yoke of the bondage of men's lusts and passions. Women who think they are standing up for their own dignity debase their dignity by taking off their clothes for the sake of being gawked at like a piece of meat. Maybe it is for money. Maybe it is for fame. But they're still being gawked at for nothing more than Uh, than their physical attributes and it is degrading and it is disgusting and it is inappropriate to every level and there's nothing about that that elevates women's dignity and there's nothing about that that elevates women's self-respect. It is nothing but degrading to women everywhere. Women who think they are empowered put on next to nothing and dance around a football game in order to keep the attention of a bunch of half-drunk men and they think that somehow this is a dignified thing, that somehow they're living the female dream. Our society, like every other society that has ever lived, has degraded itself to the point that women are in professions of shame, but are unashamed. To where women are proud of the various ways that they debase themselves. To where women look at modest women and say, oh, how constrained they are. They wear jewelry, putting it in places that encourage men to gawk at them. They get tattoos in places that encourage men to gawk at them. They wear clothing that draw attention to everywhere but their face. And while I do not pretend that women are not responsible for their own actions, supply always follows demand. Women do this because men will look, because it will get them the attention they seek. Pornography is a thing because there's great demand for it. Prostitution is a part of our culture because there is demand for it. And be it far from us men to perpetuate this demand by in being involved in it ourselves. But it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? Men or women, it comes down to this. Every time we engage in sexual misconduct, every time we look at pornography, engage in some sexual intimacy outside of God's context of marriage between one man and one woman for life, we desecrate the temple of God. We spit in God's face. We tell God directly to His face that what we want matters more than what He wants. And so the point, men and women, is this. Flee fornication. Stay away from sexual sins. Men, if you're caught in this grasp, recognize it, admit it, and get the help you need. No excuses. I can quit any time. It's not a big deal Excuses are nothing more than path to destruction. Don't give excuses. Get it taken care of. Women, if you have been caught in its grasp in either the object form or the participation form, get out now. It's not a big deal. Yes, it is. He says he loves me. No, he doesn't. Women, you will excuse your way all the way to ruin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. If our church is ever to be used by God, we must flee fornication. If you are ever to be used by God the way He wants to use you, you must flee fornication. We need to stay as far away from sexual sin as we possibly can. We need to be pure vessels, holy vessels for the Master's use. And in a society that has lost Uh, It is lost in the very deepest depths of unrighteousness and impurity in a society that is so, the moral compass of our society is so backward that even sodomy and even polygamy are seen as acceptable lifestyle choices. You and I have the privilege of being beacons of righteousness, of purity, and of holiness for all the world to see. But we can only be that way if we will choose to be that way. So may God help us. May He help us to love Him through obedience. Remember, talk is cheap. Love Him through obedience rather than disesteeming Him, despising Him through rebellion, particularly in this matter of sexual purity. Let's pray together.